When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This month, it's Susan Divers. In episode two, Susan moves to the corporate world in-house. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Susan Divers, Thought Leadership Director of Thought Leadership at LRN, for another episode of The Compliance Life. Susan, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. It's always a pleasure. Susan, uh, in today's episode, we wanted to take a little bit deeper dive into your professional career in-house. You told us how in the 90s you'd moved to SAIC. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the role you were hired to do? Sure, Tom. Um, well, I was the first lawyer on the East Coast. Um, SEIC had a legal department on the West Coast. 
but their McLean office was becoming a real center of gravity. Um, and secondly, I was hired specifically to specialize in international, and that was very broad. Um, that included um, anti-corruption, sanctions, export control, which was a big deal for SAIC, um, but it also included setting up subsidiaries abroad, um, working on uh, governance issues in different countries, and somewhat remarkably, um, supervising litigation. And so I, I dabbled a lot, I dabbled is the wrong word, I worked a lot on employment litigation in um, our different operations around the world. So I liked it because it was sort of one of the last generalist practices, although um, sometimes it made you want to tear your hair out because there was always a new issue coming up um, and we, you know, you'd have to learn uh, something about French law or whatever. What was the business of SAIC? SAIC was a tech company, um, and its motto was science through solution, or yeah, sci solutions through science. And it had a premier name as a system integrator. So a lot of our work was for the US government. And when I joined, that was probably 80%, but some of that involved overseas FMS and um, other overseas activities. Um, but then there was a real push to build up the commercial side. And I think the business, I don't, I don't, I'm active in the alumni association, but I don't remember what the, the mix is now, but it's much more commercial. They were much more successful. And that was just getting underway when I was there, where they were you know, trying to attract commercial work. And one of the first uh, pieces of that work was IT outsourcing for major oil companies, both in the UK and in Venezuela. And I worked on both of those projects extensively. Uh, did you travel overseas extensively as well? I did. Um, I, uh, at one point I wound up commuting monthly to Venezuela because I was the secretary of the board of our joint venture there. And in another instance, I was going to Scotland monthly because we had um, some issues with another um, outsourcing partner who was located in Scotland. Um, and then I went everywhere else as well, it seems. Uh, did you go to Aberdeen? I did. I liked Aberdeen a lot. Um, although this client was headquartered in Glasgow, um, oh. which is which is different. But I came to I came to really like very Glasgow different too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then later on, um, my sons and I went to the Western Isles and did sort of two weeks of island hopping, where you start in Glasgow and you you go out from there. Yeah, I've been to the Western Isles. Uh, the Isle of Skye is just gorgeous. I spent. A Two weeks on the Orkneys once, so uh, I really enjoyed that too. Oh, yeah. wow. I haven't been to the Orkneys. Yeah, we actually wound up on Isla in the middle of the Malt Scotch uh, Festival, which we didn't know was going on. And um, my sons were very happy about that. I bet they were. So uh, did you report to the general counsel or, and or was there a C CCO or CECO at SAIC at that time? There wasn't. Um, I reported to the general counsel, but I, I had a dotted line to the executive uh, vice president, who was also a lawyer, who oversaw um, all the administrative side of, of the business. Um, we didn't have a CECO until just as I was leaving. 
So what was it like sort of building a anti-corruption compliance program, a trade sanction compliance program, and doing all the things that uh, we assume a CCO or CECO does uh, really from scratch? It was from scratch. Um, on the one hand, and then I, I did pretty much the same thing when I went to AECOM. Um, on the one hand, Greenfield is very exciting, and you, you, know, you can set it up um, the way you think it should operate, uh, and it's very creative, um, and I like big projects, um, and I like seeing things through to fruition. On the other hand, it's a lot. Um, so particularly at SAIC in those days, the culture was very democratic. And in fact, when I came, people said to me, um, uh, one of the good things about working here is no one can tell you what to do, but one of the bad things is you can't tell anyone else what to do. So, so when we were getting our export, we had our first priority was to get our export control program up and to get it scaled throughout the business units because um, they were all doing different things and sometimes competing against one another. And so there was a lot of persuasion involved um, of going in and sitting down and talking to senior leaders and, and explaining why this was, was really something that we had to do uh, rather than something we just simply should do. Um, and then building that infrastructure out and building my own team at the same time um, so that I had people who were business friendly and could speak the language that my business partners did, um, but could also, you know, give give tough advice when we had to give tough advice. I'd like to ask you about uh, your work in Venezuela, specifically around uh, PDVSA. Uh, really, up until Chavez, PDVSA was a um, I'm not sure what the right word. Certainly friendly towards American companies. And I was in, at an oil field service company, and we had very close business relations with PDVSA. And I found that this was a sort of turn of the century. Their lawyers were very professional. They represented their client, but they uh, were not antagonistic. Uh, they worked very hard uh, to put contracts in place that were, had some equity, not full equity, because they were the uh, national oil company. But I was wondering if you could say a few words about working with PDVSA and in Venezuela in the 90s, as opposed to what happened uh, after Chavez came on board and since then in terms of uh, business relations between U.S. and Venezuelan companies? Well, I'm actually glad you asked that question. Um, the short answer is it was a tragedy um, because when our joint venture got underway, um, which I think was like maybe 2000, um, uh, Petabeza had a reputation which it deserved, as far as I could tell, for being the gold standard in terms of professionalism and expertise and having a good employee culture um, and being immune to corruption. Um, and we had a joint venture where we took over their IT outsourcing, and it was called Intesa. Um, and I think it was 50-50, if I remember, or maybe it was 60-40. But at any rate, um, once Chavez came in, um, the whole thing shifted, and it shifted pretty dramatically and quickly. Um, after about a year, um, we started really seeing direct interference in um, some of the things we were doing where you know, there'd be pressure to have a directed subsidiary, a directed subcontractor 
um, or other problems. And at the time, we had a very good board, and I was the corporate secretary, so I was there for all of the board meetings. Um, but even the board started feeling the pressure. And eventually, Chavez targeted Intesa um, after the coup against him um, by the military. And um, we were the first company expropriated, um, but we had armed thugs in our office taking computers and taking cars, and the employees were terrorized. Uh, and we, we essentially, in the end, had to declare force majeure. Um, and then we had uh, an overseas private investment corporation insurance policy against expropriation, fortunately, and we fully recovered under that. Uh, because it was a total, the, there was a finding, the State Department actually, I think, made the finding that it was a total expropriation. And that was a very stressful experience to go through, uh, particularly as the joint venture had been highly successful. And I think it was in the 90s, the number of 90% and above of our employees owned SAIC stock. And SAIC was an employee-owned company. So that was a very big deal. So it was watching something that was really excellent um, and working well, um, then just go completely destroyed, um, just about. You mentioned an organization, uh, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. In the oilfield services industries, we're huge fans of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. It oh, got some yeah. bad press uh, 10 years ago or so. Uh, but I was wondering if you could say a few words about your perception of the function of that organization and really how it supports U.S. businesses overseas. You know, I, I wonder if it's well known now, because in those days it wasn't. We had a really excellent risk uh, director at SAIC, and he was the person that pushed to have expropriation insurance in place. And um, so he really deserves a lot of the credit for the protection, well, for the recovery that we made under that. Um, and, and, you know, my experience with them was that, that they really did serve an important function, and they gave people some level of risk mitigation when they were operating in very difficult places. Uh, at the time, we didn't know Venezuela would turn out to be as challenging as it did, but it was a good thing that we did have that insurance policy. And that was frankly the thing that I couldn't understand when there was the congressional brouhaha over it, because uh, the way my company always used uh, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation was as a backstop. They were never on the front line. Yeah. It had to be one, two, or three things had to happen before you could even consider going to them or filing a claim. And they really were uh, just a, a distant but important risk management tool. So um, uh, I'm glad I got to talk to somebody who actually uh, was able to utilize their services. And I agree with the way you characterize them. Yeah, they, they weren't front line. They were the backstop. In our next episode, we're going to go into uh, a deep dive into your work at AECOM as CECO, but I wanted to maybe set it up by asking you uh, what led to your move to uh, the CECO chair at AECOM from SAIC? Well, I left SAIC when the founder left, and then pretty much all the people I worked with over the 13 years had left, the ones that I was very close to and that supported um, what I was doing. So it was a really, it was a changed landscape and a changed culture. And, um, and I left at a good time. Um, 
And so then I, I briefly worked at Lockheed for PAE, but then I thought about what I really wanted to do. And um, one of my friends who was a headhunter called me and she said, I have a chief ethics and compliance officer job that I think you'd be perfect for. And I thought, gee, I really have been a chief ethics and compliance officer. Um, and you know, I had set up the program at SAIC. And um, so the next thing I knew, I was the chief ethics and compliance officer at AECOM. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful experience. Well, that seems like a good place to end this episode, Susan. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best way for them to uh, get in contact with you? Um, probably my LinkedIn profile. I, I like pe directing people there because it's where I post a lot of things that I'm writing. Um, but I'm also easy to find at LRN uh, if you just go on the website. Susan, thanks again. And I look forward to uh, finding about your move to the CCO chair in our next episode. Sounds good, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.